Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the deadliest earthquake in history, a serial killer that targeted old women, and three young siblings that went missing in the 60s. January 23rd, 1556. The deadliest earthquake in history hits the Shanxi province of China in the early morning. The death toll may have been as high as 830,000 people. The epicenter was in the Wei River Valley in the Shanxi province near Huxian. Huxian was completely destroyed, killing more than half the residents in the city with an estimated death toll in the hundreds of thousands. The situation in nearby Weinan and Huyan was similar. In certain areas, crevices 65 feet deep opened in the ground. Although the quake lasted only seconds, it leveled mountains, altered the path of rivers, caused massive flooding, and ignited fires that burned for days. Millions of people at the time lived in man-made caves carved into the high cliffs of the Loess Plateau. Loess is the silty soil that windstorms have deposited on the plateau over the ages. The soft clay has formed over thousands of years due to wind-blowing silt into the area from the Gobi Desert. Loess is a highly erosion-prone soil that is susceptible to the forces of wind and water. This was the major contributing factor to the very high death toll. The earthquake collapsed many caves, burying people alive and causing landslides which destroyed many more. Modern estimates, based on geological data, give the earthquake a magnitude of 8 MW on the moment magnitude scale and an 11 on the Mercalli scale, causing catastrophic damage. Following the earthquake, aftershocks continued nearly every week over the next six months. An area over 500 miles wide was destroyed, affecting more than 97 counties. In some counties, 60% of the population was killed. The cost of damage done by the earthquake is impossible to measure in modern times. Estimates put direct deaths from the earthquake at over 100,000, while over 700,000 migrated away or died from famine and plagues, with a total loss of 800 30,000 people by imperial records. Some foreign interpretations suggested the earthquake was a punishment from God and that the great comet of 1556, discovered earlier that year, was the arrival of the Antichrist. Here's my take on the 1556 Shanxi earthquake. As I've said before, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around events with such an outrageous death toll. Catastrophic is an understatement. Apocalyptic and biblical is a better way to describe this earthquake, and I understand how it could be interpreted as a punishment from God, especially during those times. Another event that makes it clear, sometimes there's nothing you can do. January 25th, 2006. 
Mexican professional wrestler Juana Barraza is arrested for the killing of at least 10 elderly women. Juana Barraza was born in Hidalgo, a rural area north of Mexico City. Barraza's father was a police officer, and her mother was nothing more than an alcoholic. Her mother left her father when Juana was only three months old, although her mother was not present during Juana's childhood either. Years later, her mother exchanged Juana for three beers to a man who repeatedly raped her. This man got her pregnant on two occasions, once at 13 and again at 16, with both resulting in a miscarriage. Barraza finally left for Mexico City after her mother died from cirrhosis. She got married a few times and ended up having four children in total. Her oldest son died in a gang shooting at the age of 24. Barraza was a professional wrestler under the ring name La Dama del Silencio, the Lady of Silence. She had a strong interest in lucha libre, a form of masked professional wrestling in Mexico. After the birth of her fourth child in 1995, she began to steal items from shops, which quickly escalated to burglarizing homes. In 1996, she hatched a plan with a friend to steal from the elderly. The two dressed in white clothes and pretended to be nurses in order to gain access to the homes of elderly people living alone, robbing them once they were inside. However, her friend was also in a relationship with a corrupt federal police officer and they demanded 12,000 pesos in return for not arresting her. In 2000, Barraza retired from wrestling where she earned 300 to 500 pesos per fight and her situation became desperate. Brutal murders of elderly people in Mexico City began to rise in 1998, fueling press speculation about the existence of a serial killer dubbed El Mata Viajitas, the little old lady killer. However, Mexico City police denied any connection between the crimes, and a number of people were imprisoned for some of the murders. Barraza's first victim, Maria Gonzalez, was killed on November 25th of 2002. Once in her apartment, Gonzalez made comments that Barraza considered derogatory. Barraza became enraged and beat Gonzalez before fatally strangling her with her bare hands. Barraza did not kill again for three months after the first murder. The crimes increased drastically over the following year. By November 5, 2003, police had enough evidence and witness testimonies to believe that a serial killer was involved and that it was a person who was posing as a city nurse or a social worker to gain the victim's trust. The police were reluctant to make this public because the killers had become a weapon in the fight between Mexico's federal government and the capital's city council. The following month, the police released a wanted poster with two eyewitness sketches of the old lady killers. One looked feminine and another looked more masculine, but the sketches were only labeled as persons of interest and there was no mention of their clothing. It wasn't until the following year that police finally admitted to the existence of a serial killer. Barraza approached her victims on the street or knocked on their door, pretending to be a city council nurse or a social worker. Initially, she would disguise herself by simply dressing in white clothes, but later, she acquired a genuine nurse's uniform. Depending on her victim's wealth, she would gain their trust and enter their homes by offering massages or help in obtaining medicines and subsidies. Although she carried a bag with medical tools as part of her disguise, 
Barraza usually strangled her victims manually or with a ligature taken from the victim's own home, which she would leave at the crime scene. She would also rob the victims after killing them, mostly for her own gain, but she would also keep some of their items as trophies. In 2005, Barraza began a relationship with a taxi driver named Jose Herrera, aka The Bean, who became her accomplice. The attacks increased in range and frequency, and the times when the murders occurred changed from daytime to nighttime. The killing of an upper-class woman on September 28th spurred the police into launching a special operation. Officer patrols where the killer was active increased. Pamphlets advertising the elderly to be wary of strangers were distributed, along with new sketches, and the police even paid elderly women to act as bait in park areas. In a move that was heavily criticized, police also announced they were looking for a homosexual, transvestite, or transgender man, and arrested 50 cross-dressing prostitutes who were all released when their prints didn't match those collected from any of the crime scenes. The police also requested help from the French police under the belief that the killer was similar to the homosexual serial killer Thierry Paulin, who killed over 20 elderly women. The lack of murders after October made investigators consider that the killer had committed suicide. However, on January 25, 2006, Barraza was seen by a tenant as she left the murder scene of landlady Anna Maria Alfaro, and she was arrested by a passing police patrol. Although Barraza was illiterate, a search of her home found a trophy room with newspaper clippings of the murders. In 2008, Barraza was tried for 30 murders and found guilty for 16. She was sentenced to 759 years in prison and eligible for parole at the age of 100. Here's my take on Juana Barraza. I think this is another case study on the question of nature versus nurture. Was she born evil? Or was she molded into a killer from being surrounded by evil throughout her childhood? I really don't know. January 26th, 1966. Three children disappear from a beach in South Australia resulting in one of the country's largest police investigations. Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont were three Australian siblings who disappeared from Glenelg Beach near Adelaide, South Australia, in a suspected abduction and murder. At the time of their disappearance, they were nine, seven, and four years old. On the morning of January 26, 1966, The children asked their mother, Nancy, to visit Glenelg Beach, as they did the previous day. Their father, Jim, left for a business trip the previous day as well. The kids took a bus from their home to the beach, which was less than two miles away. They caught the bus at 8.45 in the morning and were expected to return home at 12 noon. Nancy became worried when the children did not return on either the 12 o'clock bus or the 2 p.m. bus, and when Jim returned home early from his trip around 3 p.m., he immediately drove to the crowded beach. 
He searched the beach and local streets until 5.30 p.m., at which point he went to the Glen Elg Police Station to report the disappearance. Police quickly organized the search of Glen Elg Beach and adjacent areas based on the assumption that the children were nearby and simply lost track of time. The search then expanded to the sand hills, ocean, and nearby buildings, with the airport, rail lines, and interstate roads being monitored as well, based on the fear of an accident or kidnapping. Within 24 hours, the entire nation was aware of the case. The Padawalonga boat haven was drained on January 29th after a woman told police that she had spoken with three children who were similar in description to the Beaumont children. She said they were near the haven at 7 p.m. on January 26th. Forty police cadets and members of the emergency operations group searched the area, but nothing was found. The case continued to receive extensive police and media attention in Australia and throughout the world, quickly attracting numerous suspects, hoaxes, and theories. The disappearance is widely credited with causing a change in Australian lifestyles since parents began to believe that their children could no longer be presumed to be safe when unsupervised in public. Police investigating the case found several witnesses who had seen the children in Collie Reserve near Glen Elk Beach in the company of a tall man with fair to light brown hair and a thin face in his mid-thirties. He had a suntan complexion and a thin to athletic build and was wearing swim trunks. The children were playing with him and appeared to be relaxed and enjoying themselves. The man actually approached one of the witnesses, asking if anyone had been near the children's belongings and explained that they were missing money. The man then went off to change while the children waited for him. The group were then seen walking away from the beach together around 12.15 p.m. The Beaumont parents described their children, specifically Jane, as shy. For them to be playing confidently with a stranger seemed out of character. Investigators theorized that the children may have met the man during a previous visit and grown to trust him. A passing remark at their home, which seemed insignificant at the time, supports this theory. Arna told her mother that Jane had a boyfriend down at the beach. Nancy thought she meant a playmate and didn't give it much thought until after the disappearance. A shopkeeper at a nearby bakery also reported that Jane bought pastries and a meat pie with a one-pound note. Police viewed this as further evidence that the children had been with another person for two reasons. The shopkeeper knew the children well from previous visits and reported that they had never purchased a meat pie before and the children's mother had only given them six shillings and six pence, enough for their bus fare and lunch, not a one-pound note. Police believed the money had been given to them by somebody else. There have been a few suspects accused of kidnapping the Beaumont children. Bevan von Einem was sentenced to life in prison in 1984 for murdering 15-year-old Richard Kelvin, the son of Adelaide anchor Rob Kelvin. Police and prosecutors publicly stated that they believed Von Einem had accomplices and was possibly involved in additional murders. About this same time, police came to suspect Von Einem of being involved in the Beaumont case. Von Einem has refused to cooperate with investigators about his possible connection with other murders. During the investigation into Von Einem, police heard from an informant identified only as Mr. B., he told police about an alleged conversation in which Von Einem 
bragged about taking three children from a beach several years earlier and then taking them home to conduct experiments. Von Einem said that he performed brilliant surgery on each of them and connected them together. One of the children had supposedly died during the procedure, so he killed the other two, then dumped the bodies in a bushland south of Adelaide. According to Adelaide Police Detective Bob O'Brien, Mr. B gave important information during the investigation into the Kelvin murder and was regarded as a generally reliable source. However, police reception of the alleged confession was mixed. There were enough plausible details to warrant further research, yet other details relayed by Mr. B did not fit with known facts and were regarded with skepticism. While Von Einem was known to have frequented Glenelg Beach to perv on the changing rooms and was described as preoccupied with children, what argues against his involvement in the Beaumont case is that he was younger than the suspect seen with the children in 1966. The suspect was reported to be in his mid to late 30s and Von Einem was only 20 years old at the time. Another important distinction is that he was convicted of murdering a 15-year-old boy and suspected of killing males in their teens and 20s victims older than the Beaumont children. Such disparities amongst victims of a serial killer are not unheard of, but unusual. The reference to the surgical experimentation Von Einem allegedly made to Mr. B also corresponded to the coroner's reports on several of the murdered teens. Von Einem also told Mr. B that he had taken two girls from the Adelaide Oval Stadium during a soccer game. He said that he killed them, but did not elaborate. In 1973, Two children, Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon, disappeared from the Adelaide Oval during a soccer game and they are presumed to have been abducted and murdered. Ratcliffe's parents and Gordon's grandmother allowed the girls to leave their group to go to the bathroom. They were seen several times over the next 90 minutes, apparently distressed and in the company of an unknown man, but they vanished after the last reported sighting. The police sketch of the suspect resembles the man last seen with the Beaumont children, and detectives believe the abductions may be linked. In 1998, Arthur Brown was charged with the murders of sisters Judith and Susan McKay in Townsville, Queensland. They disappeared on their way to school on August 26, 1970, and their bodies were found several days later in a dry creek bed. Both girls had been strangled. Brown's July 2000 trial was delayed and he was later diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. He died in 2002. Along with Von Einem, Brown is considered to be the most likely suspect for the Beaumont abduction as he bore a striking similarity to the picture of the suspect for both the Beaumont and Oval Stadium cases. A search for a connection to the Beaumonts was unsuccessful as no employment records existed that could shed light on Brown's movements at the time. Some of the records were believed to be lost in the 1974 Brisbane flood, but it's possible that Brown, who had unrestricted access to government buildings, destroyed his own files. Although there is no proof that he ever visited Adelaide, a witness recalled having a conversation with Brown in which he mentioned seeing the Adelaide Festival Center nearing completion, which would place him in the city shortly before the Oval abduction on August 25, 1973. However, no evidence has ever been found to connect Brown with Adelaide in 1966, and Brown was 53 at the time of the Beaumont disappearance.
which does not match the description of the suspect seen with the children, who again was reported to be in his 30s. Alan McIntyre, who was investigated by police and cleared of involvement in the Beaumont case, gave a second-hand account that in 1966, an acquaintance came to his home with the children's bodies in the boot of his car. McIntyre's children said they and their father initially mistook Arna's body for a boy because of her short haircut. The man in question was later identified as businessman Alan Monroe, a former scoutmaster who pleaded guilty to 10 child sex offenses dating back to 1962. In June of 2017, Adelaide detectives were given a copy of a child's diary written in 1966 which allegedly placed Monroe in the vicinity of Glen Elk Beach at the time of the Beaumont disappearance. He was convicted of abusing several children, including one of McIntyre's sons, who was a contributor to the diary. Monroe had been investigated by police, but no evidence had been found that he was involved in the Beaumont case. Harry Phipps, a local factory owner and member of Adelaide's social elite, came to attention after the publication of the book The Satin Man, uncovering the mystery of the missing Beaumont children in 2013. The book did not name the identity of the Satin Man, but Phipps' estranged son, Hayden, named him soon after the book's publication. Phipps had a substantial likeness to the man seen talking to the Beaumont children at Glen Elk Beach. He was wealthy and known to give out one-pound notes, and later alleged to have pedophile tendencies. He also lived only 300 yards from the beach. Hayden, who was 15 at the time of the disappearance, came forward to researchers in 2007 with the claim that he saw the children in his father's yard that day. Two others, who were teens at the time, said Phipps paid them to dig a hole in his factory yard that same weekend with no explanation. In November of 2013, a small section of a factory in North Plimpton was excavated, which had been owned by Phipps. A ground-penetrating radar found one small anomaly which can indicate movement or objects within the soil. But the dig found no additional evidence and investigations into the site were closed. Another excavation in 2018 found nothing related to the Beaumont case. Other suspects have been discussed but seem very doubtful, and the case has been cold for over 50 years. Here's my take on the disappearance of the Beaumont children. I seriously doubt we will ever find the monster that is responsible. And I don't think that it's any of the known suspects. Another horrible ending. I'll say it again and again and again. Pedophiles should be tortured relentlessly for decades and put down like fucking dogs thank you everybody for tuning in and I will see you next time <laughs>